Good morning, everyone. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's going to take us a few minutes to get there this morning, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we will be studying this morning. Well, Murray uh, beat me to the punch here. I was going to do a little All for Christ quiz as well, but if there's one thing we learned, it's that we need to do another All for, All for Christ quiz this morning. So um, we're uh, excited for this focus. We hope that as a church we can remember that when we think about who we are, what is it that we are about, that we can all say this, we're all for Christ. And when we talk about what we do, how do we do ministry, I hope that we can remember the discipleship path over on this side and remember that our job is to help people find and follow Jesus. Those who don't yet know him, our goal is to help them see, meet, know Jesus and become believers. And those who do know Christ, our goal is to help them grow in their faith. All right, so let's see if we can remember our four sides of the cross. What was the first one? Surrender all for Christ. There it is. And... Actually, it works with our discipleship path. What's going on on the right side of the cross? We are all together for Christ. And on the left side of the cross, what are we doing? Reach all for Christ. And today we learn about this, all for Christ's glory. So let's try and remember those four sides of the cross. Oops. What did I just do here? Before we get into our passage, I want us to spend some time talking about this important word. This word glory is a word that we use in the church. It's a word that we read in the Bible. It's not a word that we talk about a lot in our day-to-day -day lives. We don't use this word. We don't probably think about this word a lot. But to understand the story of the Bible, to understand the gospel, to understand the story of redemption requires that we understand what this word means, and particularly what it means in the Bible. So we ask that question to begin, what is glory? And I'm trying to keep it really simple and basic here for us this morning. The answer is that glory is visible beauty. If you were up early this morning and you saw a spectacular sunrise, that's glory. It's a beauty that can be seen, that's meant to be seen. And of course, if we were to say, what is the greatest glory in all the universe? What is the most beautiful thing that could ever be known? And of course, that is God. The ultimate glory in all the world, in all the universe, is God himself. It's his beauty. It's important for us to think of it in this way. And maybe as men, we don't tend to think about things that are beautiful, but it is important for us to think of God in this way, that God is ultimate beauty. He is ultimate glory. In fact, here in Isaiah chapter 6, in one of the most powerful expressions of worship that's in all the Bible, it's here on the screen for you, holy, holy, here's the, here's the cherubim crying out in worship to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The word holy, is, it's like we're saying God is in a class all by himself. Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full 
of his glory. What does that mean? Well, first of all, what it means is that when we look out into the world, into the universe, when we see beauty, we are seeing reflections of God's beauty in the things that he has made. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. That the things that God has made teach us about his attributes and his character and person. But it also tells us that God's beauty and glory is so massive, it's so wide, it's so high, that we couldn't possibly cram it all into the earth that we live in. His glory is so magnificent. So think about the beauty that we see in this world. Uh, this is a time of year when we see beauty around us. I love fall. I love the colors of fall. Uh, you can talk to Wayne and, and Peg, Murray and Shirley about their recent trip to uh, Germany and Switzerland and, and uh, they'll gladly show you. We got to see some pictures at staff meeting, pictures like this of the beauty of God's creation, the landscapes, the mountains, or maybe you're into flowers. This is, this is just a meadow of wildflowers. Maybe you think animals are beautiful. I've always thought a, a majestic horse is something that's beautiful. Maybe you look into the oceans and see the colors of the coral and all of those uh, various kinds of fish with all their stripes and colors. Maybe you just look at a sunset and you see the glory of God in that and you, as, as I often am, and just blown away by the tapestry of what God has built into his creation. Or even better for a good northern boy like me is this. I want to go up next month and hope to see the, uh, the northern lights. One of the most beautiful, amazing things that I've ever witnessed. Or maybe you're following NASA's new space telescope, the James Webb Telescope, which has been out in outer space and sending pictures back now for the last six months or so. And here's one of the pictures that we have seen, something we've never seen in outer space before. What's amazing about this is that this is... God created all this, and to us, from our naked eye, and even from our telescopes, all of this was hidden to us. We had no idea of the beauty that is uh, embedded out there in outer space until we pointed this telescope in this spot and found this. They call this the cosmic cliffs. This is just what's called a nebulae. It's, it's a star that's burned itself out, and this is the dust and color that's remained. And it's amazing, and it's beautiful. Even, even human beings. Uh, <laughs> can be beautiful and we can see beauty and glory even adults can be beautiful people folks all of these things are meant to be reflections of God's glory don't mistake any of these things for God don't worship any of these things any of these forms of beauty all of these are meant to point us to the ultimate beauty and that is God so what is God's beauty? Or said this way, what is God's glory? What are we talking about when we talk about God's glory? And this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the beauty of his person. Now his person incorporates so many things. When we talk about his person, we could talk about the fact that if we could actually see God in person, God who is spirit, we would see radiant light. We know that because that's what Peter James and John saw when they went up on that mountain we call the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus allowed them for a few moments to see uh, his true identity, his true divine nature which began to radiate out of him as, as uh, shining 
radiant light. So that's one aspect of his person. He just radiates light because of who he is. But he radiates light because of his character. That God in character is so perfect. This is why we say that God is holy, holy, holy. He is in a class by himself. When it comes to purity and holiness and righteousness, nobody is like God. He is so pure. When it comes to his power, no one is like God. His power is glorious, just as we stand on the edge of Niagara Falls and marvel at the massive power of the water flowing over that cliff. God is so much more. His wisdom is glorious. No one is wise like God. No one knows all that God knows. And on and on. His character, his person is beautiful and glorious. I mentioned this already, but we need to understand this, that God's glory is the greatest beauty, the highest value in all the universe. We need to get this through our hearts and minds this morning. What is the greatest thing? What is the most valuable thing? What is the most beautiful thing that could ever be known to humankind, that could ever be discovered in all of our universe? It's just one thing. It's God. God is of highest value, of greatest beauty, and of most glory. And we need to understand this, that God's glory is meant to be seen. In fact, that's why we're here. God existed eternally in three persons, united somehow in a relationship of one that was perfect and harmonious and loving. God could have, did and could have continued to exist without ever creating anything, just simply living within that perfection of himself. There's no loneliness there because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect communion. And yet for some reason, God chose to create. Did you ever think about that? Why did God, this glorious God, why did he create? We eradicate from our thinking the notion that God needed something, that he was lonely, or even that he just needed someone to recognize his beauty and tell him how great he is. Did God need that? No, he didn't need that. This is what, what's amazing as I think about creation. Why did God create? And I'm going to put it into this statement, and I hope that you find this helpful. It's a little bit long, but think with me through this. God created the universe to put his glory on display. Now notice, it was not for selfish gain. Why do I say that? Because the, the glory of God is that in spite of all of his greatness and bigness and power, he has chosen, as we're about to see here, to be selfless. So God created the universe to put his glory on display, not for selfish gain, not because he desperately, like, like I was as a teenager, I just need someone to validate me, someone to tell me that, I'm, that I look good or that I'm doing good or that I'm a good basketball player. God doesn't, that's not God, he doesn't need that. Not for selfish gain, but for out of, self, out of selfless love. God chose to share the best that he had with us himself. 
And we, meaning human beings, above all that God made, were meant to put his glory on display because we were made in his image. So here's, here's how I understand this question. Why would a God, a perfect God, who, who's perfectly happy, perfectly he's fine, why would he bother to create a universe that's ended up like our universe and the answer is because God has chosen to share himself, to give of himself, and even to share his glory with all that he has made. And catch this, we of all that he's made were meant to be the brightest, clearest picture of his glory. Why? Because we were made in his image. All those pictures I showed you, except for the last two, were of things that God made that are great, that are beautiful, that are magnificent, but they're not in his image. But human beings are the masterpiece of God who were meant to put his glory on display above all else. So let me go to this question because we're learning today that, that we are all for Christ's glory or this idea of glorifying Christ, what does it mean? What does it mean to glorify God? And here is the answer, glorify. Again, that's not a word we use in our common language today. But the word glorify is the verb form of the word glory. It is an action word. So take the word glory, which is a noun, it's describing something, and turn it into an action, turn it into a verb. So to glorify God is to make his glory visible. And we glorify God by declaring his beauty. We can do that with our words, just like we did as we sang those songs this morning or anytime we say God is good or thank God. Anytime we use our words to declare the goodness of God, we are glorifying him. But then we also, besides our words, we put his glory on display in our lives. Now, who is the person who did this best? Who is the human being who finally and ultimately demonstrated what it looked like to glorify God in a human body? That was Jesus. And he did it in these two ways, didn't he? He did it with his words. He did it by honoring his Father, by praying to his Father, by pointing people to his Father. But he also did it with the beauty of a pristine character of kindness, of compassion, of wisdom, of goodness, impeccable in every way. Jesus, by the life that he lived, was glorifying God. It's what we were meant and are meant to do. So before we get to our passage, I just want us to consider this question. How did sin affect God's glory? So we've talked about why God created and why God made human beings and how we were made in his image, but we all know the story. I think most of us know the story. In Genesis chapter 3, when the first human beings colossally failed, and they rebelled against their creator and they sinned against God. And what has that done to this whole issue of the glory of God? Well, sin was humanity rejecting God's gift of himself. Remember what we said, that God in creation didn't need anything from us, but was selflessly giving himself. He was selflessly sharing himself and his glory 
with all that he made, especially with human beings. And in Genesis chapter 3, you know what we said? I say we, Adam and Eve, uh, doing what all of us have done subsequently, is we rejected that gift of all gifts. The opportunity to dwell in harmony with God, to know him, to experience him, to receive his gifts of provision for us. And we said, it's not good enough. That's what Adam and Eve said. All, all Satan had to do is, you know, you could, this could be better for you. In fact, if you eat the fruit that God told you not to eat, this will actually end up better for you than what you have right now. Can you imagine being in the Garden of Eden and being convinced that it wasn't good enough? That God hadn't been good? That his plan wasn't good? That his gifts were not enough? That his provision was not adequate? And that is what Satan convinced Adam and Eve to believe in the Garden. And all of us have done the same thing in our lives. We've all been born and lived under the awareness of a creator who's behind it all. And yet we have said to him by our actions, by our choices, it's not enough, you're not enough. In fact, we've done what Romans chapter 1 says that all humans have done, and that is that we've worshipped the created things rather than the, cre the creator. And that is why we're no different than the ancient peoples of the Old Testament who made gods out of wood and metal and bowed down to them and worshipped. We've all done the same thing because we have valued created things more than the Creator. So how has sin affected God's glory? Well, sin was us rejecting God's glory and trying to steal the glory. Remember Satan said, you could be like God, well, that sounds good. And instead of receiving the shared glory that God intended us to dwell with in his presence, we try to usurp and steal the glory for ourselves by putting ourselves on the throne of our lives. And furthermore, sin damaged our ability to put God's glory on display. We who were made in God's image, now stained, broken, twisted with sin. Now, by the way, we still see people do things that are actually good and pleasant and praiseworthy. Why? Why, do, why? why are human beings capable of that? It's because they're made in God's image. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see someone who isn't actually a follower of Jesus, who does something selfless, sacrificial, something that actually points to God. We shouldn't be surprised by that because people, human beings, are made in God's image. But that image has been badly tainted stained in us, broken in us, so that we are not able to, uh, as it says in Romans, live up to the standard of God's glory. Do you ever wonder about that? And one of the most famous verses in the Bible about sin is Romans 3.23. And it says that all have sinned, and then it says this, and fallen short of what? The glory of God. We quote that verse, we quote it in Sunday school and to camp, we use that verse to share our faith with others, but have you ever thought about, like, what does that actually mean? And what does the glory of God have to do with us being sinners? Everything. Because we were made to be perfect reflections 
of God in his character and in his goodness. And sin has caused us to fall short of the glory. Not only that, but because of the curse that has come upon our world, because of our sin, creation itself is a stained reflection of God's glory. So around us, we see beauty. see the harvest going on around us. But then if you look close, you see things that aren't beautiful. You see the crops that have blight. You see the fields that have weeds. You see, you see the hurricanes on the news. And Romans tells us that the whole creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption to come. This is how sin has affected God's glory. This is why we need the gospel. The good news of redemption, which tells the story of how God, in all of his glorious goodness, has continuously throughout history reached out to fallen humanity to restore us, to restore us back to the place where we could glorify God. And one day Jesus will return and restore his whole creation to a place of glorious beauty. So we come now to Second Thessalonians, having said all of that as a very long introduction. And I want us to see simply the final two verses of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Here's Paul, he's writing to the believers in Thessalonica, Thessalon, the Thessalonican believers. He says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness, your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it again if you don't mind. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness, your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I read these words of Paul, and I hear him sharing his heart with the Thessalonican believers. We hear him in verse saying, verse 11 saying, we constantly pray for you. We hear his heart, his longing, his desire for these believers in a fairly new church. These are fairly young believers. But his prayer for them, his desire for them, essentially we could chalk it up to the discipleship path. What he's praying for is for their maturity and for their growth. Notice how he says it. That God would make them worthy of their calling. Reminds me of what our desire is, myself as a pastor, the other pastors of this church, the elders of our church. This is what we long for. Our concern is not that we fill every pew and have the largest budget around, there's one concern, and that is that people would know Christ, and having come to know Christ, that they would grow 
and the maturity, the quality of their faith would bring honor and glory to Christ. That's all that matters. So Paul prayed for that for his people. This is our prayer for all of us as a church family. This is what our leaders as a church long for. Notice what he says, that God would make you worthy of his calling. If we follow the train of thought here, you know we're heading to verse 12 because we're talking about glorifying Christ. So notice in verse 12, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. But if you trace back, how do we get there? How do we get to where we glorify the name of Christ? Or say it in the way we've been saying it, that we are all for Christ's glory. How do we get there? And we, we trace back the train of thought here, and we find that it's by being worthy of our calling. In order to glorify Christ as a believer, first, if we follow Paul's train of thought, we have to be worthy of our calling. Now, what does that mean? Well, calling can mean a few different things in Scripture. One way is the word calling speaks of how God calls us to salvation. This is a kind of a call. It's, 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 this is like a, a divine thing that God in his sovereignty is inviting people to salvation, calling us to be saved. But there's another way the word is used, and that is more to describe what he's called us to. Salvation, yes. But we've been learning that we are called to be followers of Jesus, that we are called to be disciples, that we have heard the voice of Jesus with that specific calling, come follow me. So both of these things are true. We've been called to salvation in Christ. To be worthy of that calling means that we actually act like we're saved. But then we have this more specific calling where we are called to be followers of Jesus, to represent him in this world, to be his church or his body. And how do we do that? Well, we've got to be worthy of his calling. If he calls us to be his body, no surprise, that there is a certain standard that we would want to meet in order to be that reflection of him in this world. If he's called us to fulfill his mission, then there's a certain standard we want to meet in order to represent him properly in that message. So notice the train of thought in these verses. Verse 12, we come to this grand goal of glorifying the name of Christ. How do we get there? By being worthy of his calling. And how do we become worthy of our calling? Notice in verse 11, there's two things that he describes that should be true of us. Worthy of his calling, that by his power he may bring to fruition your every, notice here, every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith. I've summarized it in this expression. We become worthy of our calling as we desire goodness and do deeds of faith. I love this. The Christian life requires two major changes in our hearts. One is that we go from valuing the things of the world or those created things that I was talking about. We go from worshiping things that are not God and our hearts change. In, in other words, our desire changes. 
when we used to desire selfishly things that, that, that I was worshiping other than God, that I wanted things of this world, even sinful things, but our hearts change, and now what we really want are the things that God wants. That's a change that has to happen. In fact, if you're sitting here today saying, oh, I've never had that change, you need to understand there's two sides to this change. One is, you've got to make a decision. And the other is, God has to change your heart. But if you're truly saved, this change is happening. You begin to desire goodness. You desire the things that God desires. You begin to want to help people compassionately the way God does. You begin to want to tell people about Jesus. You begin to want to serve God. There's all kinds of ways that we can express this goodness. It's all centered on God and on Christ. But notice the second thing. For us to be worthy of our calling requires that we do deeds of faith. Love that expression. What is a deed of faith? Now, uh, the history of this church would put a great deal of emphasis on the fact that we are not saved by doing what? Works or good deeds. And yet, of course, the teaching of Scripture from one end of the New Testament to the other is that those who are truly saved will most certainly do good deeds. And here Paul uses this expression of doing deeds of faith. First of all, that tells us that there is something that you will do. Christianity is not a passive thing. It doesn't, happen, just, doesn't just happen to you. To be part of a church is not meant to be a passive thing. If your uh, contribution to this church is coming and sitting in a pew on Sunday morning, and that's it, then you haven't caught on to what Christianity is all about. God calls us to do deeds of faith. A deed of faith is something that I do, that I, I recognize I'm doing not in my own strength, right? It's a deed of faith because I'm doing it with, with an eye on God, recognizing that unless he does this through me, unless he empowers me, unless he takes this act of mine and makes something of it, or, or say it this way, it's a deed that I'm actually terrified to do on my own. I'm, I'm so afraid to do this that I, as I do it, am just crying out, saying, Jesus, take the wheel. Because I know I can't do it in my own strength. These are deeds of faith. In fact, the whole Christian life, when it comes to our part of the Christian life, is this. We live deeds of faith. Many of us in this room have missed out on the absolute excitement and wonder of the Christian life because we've limited our deeds, not to deeds of faith, but to deeds that I deem I can do myself. I don't need God for this. So, for example, we might say, I'll, I'll do kids' ministry. You know, I've, I've actually done some early childhood training. I'm good with kids. I got this. We choose ministries and areas of service based on what we feel comfortable with. This is within my comfort zone. This is in my wheelhouse. There's a place for that. God's given us skills and passions, obviously. But we limit our deeds to what falls within my comfort zone. Brothers and sisters, the world would never have been evangelized if the first believers decided to only serve God 
in areas of their own comfort. That is why, and Rick shared this verse from Acts chapter 4 last Sunday, when as they faced their first persecution and Peter and John were flogged for speaking of Christ at the temple and they were warned to stop preaching about Jesus and they went back and gathered as a church and cried out for boldness. And the place where they met was shaken and they went out and did the impossible. They continued to preach the gospel with boldness. That is a deed of faith. Many of us would have to say, like, I, I believe in Christ. I believe that I have this living relationship with Christ and yet I, I just don't know where he is. I don't, I don't sense much of his presence in my life. And it's because we've limited our actions as believers to what's within our comfort zone. The deed of faith has come out here. It is way more exciting on the outside of that safe space called your comfort zone. Come and serve out of faith, trusting a God who can do it. I would be terribly amiss, though, if I didn't point out in this passage. Yes, there is our side. We have responsibilities here. When it comes to be worthy of our calling, we have responsibilities. We want to glorify the name of Christ. We have some responsibilities, but brothers and sisters, do not miss that this is a gospel and redemptive thing that happens to us. Notice all of the things that God does to make this possible. God is the one who calls us. He's the one who invites us to salvation. He's the one who says, come follow me. He's the one who took the initiative. If God hadn't looked at us with compassion and said, I want to save you, come be saved, we would never be saved. It's only because of his kindness. God is the one, it says so clearly in verse 11, who makes us worthy. He makes us worthy through salvation in Christ. Uh, our sin is placed on Christ and the cross. His righteousness is placed upon us. And having believed, God begins this work of transformation where we are becoming gradually more like Jesus. That is his work in us. He's making us worthy. God does miracles. Notice what it says next, that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness. When is the last time we saw God answer a prayer for something that we long to do for him out of faith. We were scared. He gave us courage. We said, God, would you do this? Would you give me the courage, the strength to say something about you to my boss, to my coworker, to my classmate? Would you give me the strength to serve you in this way that I'm terrified to do? And having stepped out, and, and Rick shared this last week as well, how do we experience this kind of supernatural work of God in our lives? Remember he said, pray. That's Trust God, pray, and secondly, obey. Move ahead, step out. In the Old Testament, God said to his people, everywhere you set your foot, I will give that to you in the promised land. So we step out in faith and we find that God does miracles. He brings to fruition, it says. He makes things happen. That's the kind of life I want to live as a Christian. And then notice, as all of these things are happening, verse 12 says, the Lord Jesus is glorified in you. But don't miss the next little phrase. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Don't stop there. It says, and you in him. What does that mean? 
takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 where a, a God who needed nothing, a God who is all glorious, decided to create a universe and a humanity out of selfless love, simply saying, I would like to share my glory with others. And having sinned and having spit in the face of God and having rejected his glory and having gone our own way, God brings us all the way back through redemption and says, now, now, I'm going to glorify you. This is the most bizarre reality of the whole Christian faith. That God would look at us in all of our unworthiness, say, you're glorifying me, thank you, but I'm going to glorify you. Doesn't make any sense. How could it possibly be? But this is the work of God. And one day we will be in his presence. And the New Testament teaches us that there will be a measure of glory that is placed upon us. And we will see God in all of his glory. Somehow we'll have eyes that can withstand the, the radiance of that. And yet somehow we, all of us, to some measure, will reflect visibly the glory of God. And we can do that now. I'd like to sing, and then I'm going to come again and show you specifically how we can do that. But first let's sing, and then I'll... Come back and we'll pray together. How do we grow in our glory? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18 these simple words, that we all who contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. The simple secret to glorifying Christ is to be amazed by the glory of Christ. The more we spend time thinking about that, admiring that, worshiping him for that, the more we glorify him and the more his glory is seen as our lives are transformed. God, this is what we long for. As your people, as a church family, I pray for this, Lord. I pray for this in my own life and how desperate I know it's needed, Lord, that I would become more like Christ for my wife and my kids, my church family. Lord, this is what you are saving us for. This is why you work your work of redemption is so that we could somehow share in your glory, so that we could begin to look like you. And we just marvel, Lord, that you'd want to share the greatest thing in all the universe with us. But this is what you've done in the gospel. Forgive us, Lord, for standing in the way of this transformation. Forgive us, Lord, for worshiping created things rather than the creator. Forgive us, Lord, that our desire has not been above all else to glorify Christ. Would you change our hearts? We pray this for the sake of your great name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat>